What is up, NC Raw allies? We are back after a two-week break in the schedule. We're back with another episode featuring an amazing and inspirational woman, Miss Frida Saylor. I know that name might sound familiar. Frida was on the show during episode eight, and it's an episode that was lost in the archives, never to be heard again. We had some technical difficulties after the fact, and we never released the show. So we invited her back to share her story and perspective on recovery and kind of what she's doing in the local community. Frida Saylor is the behavioral health director at the Cherokee Hospital. She's also very passionate and educated on the effects of trauma and the role it plays not only in, um, not only as it relates to substance use, but just overall mental health and well-being and kind of how we pass those experiences on to, uh, from generation to generation. So this is a fabulous show. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to her. Um, the woman is just a, a wealth of knowledge. So give it up, ladies and gentlemen, for Miss Frida Sailor. The opinions expressed in this podcast are the views of the NCR team and the individuals interviewed. We do not consider ourselves to be mental health professionals. Our mission is to explore the various pathways to recovery and to give a voice to those affected by or involved in the care of substance use disorders. Some content may be mature for younger audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Frida Saylor. Hello. Welcome back to NC Raw. Thank you. This is your uh, second appearance on the show. Mm-hmm. My dog, Caleb. McCoy, what's up, man? Not much, brother. What's happening? Nothing. Just ready to ready to get this in and talk to Frida. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. You know, she's got a world of knowledge here to share and experience. So, I couldn't agree with you more. Mm-hmm. I thoroughly enjoyed having her on. It was, believe it or not, that was episode eight. So that was like ten episodes ago. Mm-hmm. We've come a long way since oh, then. Yes, we have. And um, you know, we didn't really like publicly address like what happened 
and like why we didn't we never we never released the episode that we recorded what's up what happened when frida was on and if you remember um we were kind of beta testing some video equipment mm -hmm. right we were next door over in the television production room with a big full set and we had um three big cameras on us a, a fellow student volunteered to record and um we record he recorded all the audio like she always does for every one of the other 16 episodes that we've recorded and when she went back to edit the audio um apparently we had used a defective or shorted out cord a wire that plugged into miss hmm. frida's microphone mm -hmm. so you can hear me and you loud and clear of course talking to her asking her questions and Who's she, she sound like? Charlie Brown's teacher. Okay. That's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> she sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. You could not make out you could not make out a word that she said. And so um how how to go again? <laughs> and so um, you know, this just goes to show like the character that this woman carries. Um when I first met her at McDonald's in Cherokee to talk about and playing the show. I was like, what's like the main point, the main focus, the message that you want to convey to the mm -hmm. audience? And she went into um, talking about resiliency and like, um, you know, how that was like something that was very important to her. And so Courtney broke me the news and Courtney hates, she, she, one of the things that like gets at Courtney is Courtney really struggles with like breaking bad news to me. Right. Um, like there's things that come up all the time where like, like the very first that episode, I don't even so, hear about yeah, yeah. Well, she's like, she just like, she's real hesitant and gentle to approach me about it. And I've learned along the process to just like, I can't control these things. These things are going to happen when you're, and that's why you saw Frida today. Like we were doing all these tests before you got here. We were like, we had it all going on, testing things, trying to get it right. And um, Courtney doesn't like breaking me the bad news. You know, she doesn't. And uh, so Courtney called me up and she's like, listen, Steve, we got to talk. Cause we had recorded this video episode to post on YouTube, mm -hmm. right? Our first episode with like three different camera angles, really trying to take it to like, you know, full on production, make, right. just, just to like see what we could do with it. She's like, yeah, it's like the videos came out perfect, but you can't hear Frida. And I was like, what do you mean? Like the whole show? She's like the whole entire two hours that we talked, you cannot hear Frida. And I'm just like, ah, so, you know, I, I, I want to ask Frida something. Sure. So obviously, you know, mm -hmm. since that happened, Frida, why why is it just in a couple sentences? Why is it so important that you come back on and share again? Um, well, I guess one of the biggest things is is um, I don't, you know, I don't really know. I just I just know that you know there's people out there that um, may have misconceptions of things when it comes yeah. to behavioral health or even experiences that people have had. Um, so I think it's real important just to make sure that we normalize some of that stuff as being not normalize it to the point of it being okay, but normalizing things that so people know that they're not the only one out there that that deals with some of this stuff. And and really, that's why I'm in the field today um, is because a lot of that, a lot of the stuff that um, maybe has been normalized at some level. Um, and we have a lot of families, especially, you know, 
throughout the country, but in Cherokee in particular, that we have um, just people, I mean, we were losing generations, and, you know, we just have to, to be vocal and, and do something and, and work in the right direction. So. Okay. I know that there's, uh, I've had some people, and we'll get to this in a little while, but I've had, I'm glad you're back on, and there's there's been some people could reach out to me about some things that I'm sure you're going to answer as well, like just in our community mm-hmm. on the reservation. So I'm really looking forward to, you know, this show here. So, like, I called, Courtney broke me the news. I called up Frida, and I was like, hey, you know, kind of kind of talk to you about something. I was like, you know, this is the situation. I was like, we can do, Courtney had, you know, kind of gone over what our options were as far as trying to salvage the thing. And she was like, you know, we have Steve and Caleb's audio. I'm like, so we can either A, put some headphones on you and let you listen to what me and Caleb were saying and have you just kind of give us some comments to mm-hmm. fill in the gaps or we can redo the show. And she just calmly and collected. She's like, no, let's do it again. And I was just like, yeah, that just just goes to show like the type of woman that she is and the character that she that she carries. And the other thing is that, um, and we'll totally get to this probably a little bit later in the in the episode. But the other thing is that um, we were talking on your episode last about some things have changed. Well, I think one of the things that I was asking you last last time you were on was. Um, you know, we were talking about the continuum of care, and I, I think specifically asked, like, where are mm. the opportunities and what's missing? And I think what your your answer has changed since mm-hmm. we last spoke, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. So we'll, has. we'll get there. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk yeah, about right? that. Yeah, you remember what cool. she said? No, I don't. No? Okay. No. Yeah, well, it, 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 <laughs> but I know what's changed. Yeah, well, you know, some that, stuff that's changed. It's not the same as it was a couple months ago. So it's movement in the direction that mm-hmm. she wanted, I think. So. Mm-hmm. Before we get into it, we got some community events taking place that we want to invite our audience out mm. to join us and celebrate. The first one is this weekend, August 11th. My dog, Caleb, is going to be, y'all going to be over at Rock Bottom Recovery and Support? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Stacy Ladford, Carol Arendale, I think it's her name. I think. Anyways, I need some grace and forgiveness, Carol. Uh, but yeah, we're going to be over there. It's that recovery event. We're really looking forward to making those connections and seeing how we can help out in Hayesville as well. Over at the Hayesville Town Square this Saturday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Um, they're going to be offering live music, a whole bunch of guest speakers, activities for the kids, bounce houses and whatnot. And they're gonna, most importantly, they're going to be selling barbecue. So uh, definitely come <laughs> out and, and check that out. If I think their youth group's put on some kind of skit. Youth group's doing some... Live entertainment. Some uh, sort they're, of, they're, after eating the barbecue in Arkansas, they better make sure they bring it. <laughs> bring it? In. Yeah, bring it. If, is that what you're charging <laughs> it for your guest speaker appearance? Yeah. Play the barbecue? Oh, they, they shoot. <laughs> Stacy was messaging me last night telling me about the barbecue, so excited for that. Awesome, man. And a couple other events towards the end of the month. Um, August 31st is International Overdose Awareness Day. So there's two events taking place on that day. The first is down in Franklin for all you Macon County, Cherokee, Jackson County residents. Full Circles Recovery Center is hosting the fifth annual Night of Hope. And that's taking place August 31st at 6 p.m. What does that look like? 
Um, they're inviting people out to participate in a, in a memorial ceremony where you can share your loved one's names to be remembered. Hmm. Um, there's all kinds of agencies out there that can provide substance use prevention as well as treatment and education for your family. It's a kid-friendly event. You don't have to identify as being in recovery. They're, they're literally opening their doors to, to anyone and everyone. Um, they're going to provide free barbecue pork dinner. Hmm. So I know you'll be there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and while it's, while it lasts a free event t-shirt and, um, opioid prevention education and Narcan reversal kits. So come on out to that. The information is on the full circles recoveries, Facebook page. There's an event set up for that. And also for our, Asheville and Buncombe County audience, there's a very similar event taking place out in Asheville for Asheville Overdose Awareness Day. Um, it's an event to honor those we have lost in our community to the two opioid overdoses and to raise awareness for the services that are needed to prevent future losses. Uh, and that is taking place on August 31st in Asheville as well. Same thing. There's a, a Facebook event where you can find all the details for that, for that information. And we'll be talking these events up as they, as we roll through the month of August. So, okay. A lot of stuff going on. A lot of stuff going on. Absolutely. And September is going to be just as busy, um, being National Recovery Month. We got events taking place all over the state. So. How about uh, anniversaries, man? We got some audience, some audience anniversaries that we'd like to recognize. Some folks. Nate Garcia. Nate hit, Garcia just hit a year um, on the this past Sunday, not not yesterday, but the Sunday before. Because we've been off. Yeah. So Nate Garcia, congrats, big dog. Shout out Nate. Shout I out seen him Nate. Today. Did I seen, you? Yeah, I seen him today. He was cleaning the bathrooms at the island and got to talk to him for a few minutes and. The NC Raw team has a ton of love for you. We also have my dog, Justin Blackburn of Asheville. He celebrated three years a couple weeks ago while we were on break and we weren't recording shows. He's going to be a future guest. He's going to be on in the month of September towards the end of the month. So shout out Justin Blackburn. Uh, Sharonda Wadi. Sharonda Wadi is celebrating one year tomorrow. All right. Congratulations. She commented on our Facebook post about it, and I told her we'd give her some love tonight. Okay. And then lastly um, is someone that's very close to me, somebody who I really looked up to as a a young child, an adolescent, teenager, um, one of my, like, key role models in my life growing up, my uncle, Jerry Lambert. He's celebrated eight months um just last week while we okay. were on, on, on vacation too so i want to give him a ton of love man. uncle jerry S- uncle jerry jerry lambert <laughs> all right super proud of you g so saturday eight months rachel rachel taylor taylor yeah is celebrating eight months on saturday she did celebrate right yeah. yep she hit eight months if you can hear my voice, we got a Facebook post. We want to recognize you guys and give you some love. Just drop your date, drop a comment. If you got an anniversary coming up, we'll give you a shout out on air. One to three days. Kaylin Ledford. Gosh. 
18? Yeah, that's right. Yep. 18 months. 18 months. The lioness. The lioness. Well, I got to get in here, baby. You're doing amazing. Proud of you. Give her some love. Toot that horn. <laughs> I hit 16 months. I'm a dog. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just cutting it to a point where it's just, mm -hmm. just flowing. You That's know. how it goes, bro. <laughs> Frida Sailor. What is up? <laughs> it's busy. Busy? Super yeah. busy. What have you been up to? Been to, I was like, so you know we do the picture segment, right? Mm -hmm. And I go through and pick up some pictures for the end. And I just noticed something. You do a lot of traveling? A little bit. A little Sometimes. Bit? Is that just something that you're like into? You enjoy? Or I, what? I like traveling. Do you? Yeah. All right. So let's, uh, so for the, uh, obviously for those who didn't tune into your first episode, let's just kind of reset and talk about like what what your position is like mm -hmm. we talked about um at the beginning of this episode and then like what um what you do on a daily basis what does your job entail what does it look like who do you serve mm -hmm. well um i've been um the director of behavioral health since july of last year so um luckily i've um I've made it a year, <laughs> but prior to that, I was the assistant director. So, um, and then prior to that, I was, you know, supervisor, clinician, um, and then a clinician um, at the Cherokee Indian Hospital. So I've kind of worked since, I think, 2012 for the Cherokee Indian Hospital, and um, just really glad to, to be in the position that I am in. Um, so what I do on a day-to-day -day basis, um, I go to a lot of meetings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I have to think a little bit out of the box sometime and um, I work with a lot of um, staff members we, we work a lot together collaboratively on a lot of issues that may come up whether it's building programs formulating programs uh, figuring issues out or just um, helping programs float I guess if you will mm -hmm. for lack of better terms um, so we do a lot of that we do a lot of building a lot of um what would you say that um creating i guess if you will and a lot of workflows a lot of policies you know some people may not like that type of thing and for me i really like it i found my um you know before when i would do direct service with folks in um in therapy i would you know get that's what i would get you know that individual success with them and and working with them directly but now it's a different level where i kind of get to um help and and manage a little bit of the the services delivery that actually goes on at a higher level I guess mm -hmm. if you will so I get to help shift that you know and change that paradigm um when it comes to quality of service when possible and um just kind of directing if you will um some of those service delivery things which is a lot of things right now and you started in 2012 as just a counselor? Yeah, I was a therapist. I came in as a therapist at the hospital after moving back from Atlanta. How have things changed in the last six years that you've been there as far as like mm -hmm. what you've seen? Well, it certainly changed a lot. When I come in 2012, we were under the tribal umbrella, so we weren't doing any billing whatsoever with Medicaid. And so we had maybe 15 staff at or around. And so when we transferred under the hospital, that's about how much staff we had. And now we've got 
a whole lot of staff. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've got a lot of positions, including our psychiatric team. So um, that's good. You know, we've got folks in a lot of areas. Were you involved in that, like, transition process from... I think you, yeah, with being 15 people at some level, you were involved. Mm-hmm. It was a shift, was. and it was a, it was a big, and we, uh, the current director, I mean, the former director at the time was Doug Trantham. He's he's the assistant director now, and he's um, doing the work down at Conowo T, and he did a lot of work around the, the Medicaid billing piece so we could grow our services, mm-hmm. because probably we wouldn't have been able to do that without without that work that he put into that. So it's good because, you know, we're certainly do that. So we've been able to expand our services because of that. Um, what uh, what inspired you to kind of seek out this mm-hmm. field and kind of go down this road of being of service to your immediate community that you grew up in? Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, of course, with raising two small children, you know, and not really a lot of uh, support. You kind of just go and try to figure out what's going to work for you. Um, And I knew I couldn't do what a lot of other folks were doing. I just couldn't. It wasn't in me. Um, But I tried some level, probably to fit in in that level, but (laughs) it didn't work. Um, So, you know, I knew going to school, you know, being able to take care of my kids was my primary thing and going to school was a way that I could do that and still take care of them and and be the mom I needed to be so what I did is um went for business because I had no idea what I wanted to do your alumni yeah we're on you're on campus yeah yeah western alumni two times two times yep so I've got um and then of course I got into business and I'm like wow business I couldn't find a job so (laughs) so you graduated with your bachelor's degree of in business, it's business yeah. administration and okay. law, yeah. yeah. And then I went back because um, I couldn't find a job and said, I'm going to just take some social work classes. I like helping people. And so, you know, that really forced me and started me on a journey that would um, force me to look at myself and look at forgiveness for others and forgiveness for myself and kind of work on myself. And so ideally, that's been the greatest gift for me going down that road of social work. So I started in a bachelor's program and entered their child welfare collaborative scholarship scholar program and said, I'm going to graduate with a specialty now. I'm going to get a job. And so when I graduated, of course, I went all the way to the coast of North Carolina. couldn't find a job. <laughs> and that was one of the requirements. Yeah. Um, so then I was like, well, then I got a business job with a, dry, with a tribe working as an auditor. Mm-hmm. So I worked there for just a little bit before I realized, wow, there's got to be more for me because this is this isn't it. Although it was a great job, um, it just wasn't giving you. Yeah, it wasn't giving felt. me that fulfillment mm-hmm. that I needed. So went and got my master's, but I went to Florida. Uh, I feel like we're. I feel like um, you're skipping some stuff. At, All I am. <laughs> so let's back up a little okay, bit, Freya. Okay. Why is it? I heard you say something about forgiveness for others, and mm-hmm. what did you mean by that? Um. And Caleb's going to make me cry because I'm I'm a crier and I ain't going to apologize because I stopped that long time ago. Um, But I guess just forgiveness for others. I mean, you have to learn how to forgive others, you know. Well, what what exactly? um, You're trying to talk about the hard stuff, aren't you? (laughs) Um, Well, just just family, you know, just being. There's there's somebody out there, Freda, that needs to hear what you what Mm -hmm. you what you have to share. Yeah, and even if it's not necessarily <laughs> like the specifics of what yeah. happened, right. what was that process well, like you know, for you? Well, I quit school when I was 16 years old, 
Um, of course, you know, I had a lot of things going on in my family. My mom was sick. And so that's kind of what worked for us at the time to support her. Okay. Um, <laughs> and so um, that was kind of the path that I went down is going, you know, just to that and trying to figure out, you know, what do I do now um, with little to no support. So I um, kind of went out on my own and did my own thing. I had two kids. Um, my mom passed away when I was like 19 years old. So um, I talk about that because it's hard to, um, and I say that because, you know, being a young mother and having to take care of your children and not being able to is really hard. And so that, that holds a special place in my heart to know that, you know, I did that for my kids and I don't know where I would be without them boys because those first two boys anyway, I have two more boys. Um, and so to be able to provide them with what they needed, you know, I had to do what I needed to do with that in all the back of my mind throughout my schooling, mm-hmm. um, always working, you know, always going to school because that worked for me. And unfortunately, sometimes, you know, with family members that don't go down that same path and nobody to really guide you and lead you in those directions. Um, I always said, you know, and they didn't they didn't mean no harm. Family doesn't. But, you know, just to have people to be proud of you and not try to bring you down or if you failed nobody could say anything to you because what was they going to say if anything sometimes they'd give you a little bit more hard time because you was in school because you did better than them or you were um perceived as trying to be better than someone else just because you were down a different path so they would oftentimes use that against you Mm -hmm. um especially if you had family that was um that was out there and I, and I had a lot of family at times that was out there. Um, so that wore me out. It really did. Taking care of them, trying to take care of my family, and also in the midst of doing that, trying to um, really um, find a way, you know, to help them but help myself without drowning with them. So that oftentimes was really hard. And I love, I love my family. You know, they're, they're very, very good people. So not to try to say anything bad about anyone, but you know, it was just, that's my experience. And, um, I had to learn some boundaries, you know, and Mm -hmm. some really good boundaries, but it wasn't until I was already in the ditch with them, you know, and I'll say that, um, because I was really in the ditch, you know, I couldn't sleep at night. I remember at one point in my master's program, you know, that I would, you know, be communicating with some of my family and, and, you know, they would literally be, you know, you know, using on the phone with me. They would be, um, you know, just, and I'm sitting there hanging up the phone wondering, you know, are they alive? Are they dead? Um, but you know, at one point I said that I walked away from them, burying them in my mind, knowing that anything that I could possibly do to help them was what I was doing at that moment. And, to know that if they died when I did that, that I had to picture that in my mind and picture them calling me and saying they're dead, you know. And so um, to know that that would foster healing for me, to know that I did everything that I could possibly do. Because, you know, you don't call the police on your family. You don't you don't turn your back on your family, especially when you know that they have little to nobody mm-hmm. and you're the only one that they have. So that was really hard. It's a very deep level of kind of of acceptance to like face that Mm -hmm. and know that the things that you're doing are what's best for yourself Mm -hmm. and for them in that situation. What, what types of, I mean, you talked about kind of like that visualization Mm -hmm. of, um, 
what types of how did you learn that or what types of steps did you take to like mm-hmm. achieve that type I, of acceptance? I think just like many families and I see this every day that many families get to that point where they have no choice. Either they get become forever bitter about that person that they've tried and tried and tried or they become to the point where they have to find some kind of solution that's going to work for them which could look like that you've turned your back on your family or it looks like so most of the time what I've seen and what I experienced is my myself is getting to that point of the break yeah you know and not really having the opportunity to um you know rationalize what made sense prior to that you know mm-hmm. because I was already at the point of either I've got to find something to help me survive now because I'm in the ditch and I'm doing it with my eyes wide open and I, you know I'm sick just a lot you know just just as much as they are yeah and would you say that by like doing those things and kind of creating those boundaries is would be a kind of appeared from like the f- community could that be a perceived what do you mean would the community for. perceive that as turning your back on them like did you feel a level of like yeah let's let's talk specifically Fred, because a mm-hmm. lot of people don't know what to do you know mm-hmm. and you have a, a, all kinds of you know experience and knowledge and understanding of of mm-hmm. those boundaries and just share what some of those boundaries look like well, and I, um, you actually had said something, and I, and I brought this up in the last interview mm-hmm. that you had talked about. Um, you know, I had spoke to you and told you, you know, well, you know, when I moved back here from Atlanta, you know, I was running away when I left, but when I moved back, I was like, I've got to have some, some really good rules about what we're going to do and mm-hmm. how I'm going to live here. And so, you know, I said, don't come to my house if you're used, and that's what I used to say. And I used to say, yeah. don't get you out of jail, and I don't want people money. And so, um, for the most part, I said, you know, I can't, I can't do that. And, you know, just recently, probably over the last year or so, I've really started to reevaluate one of my rules of don't come to my house if you're using. And it's actually when you misquoted me when you said, don't come to my house or you can come by or mm-hmm. and I'm going to watch you and I'm going to leave you alone. And I thought, well, I have let family members come by and I have fed them. And, you know, I don't feel like I had needed to keep my walls up as much, but I still needed to keep my boundaries because before I needed to protect myself. And right now I don't feel like I do. Do they understand those boundaries though? Have you? A lot of times people, people just won't stop by. People won't come, but they've been coming lately um, a little more. And then I get the opportunity to at least mention, you know, how they could have some help or how, what they need to do to get that help. So, you know, if I'm closed off, I know, that, you know, in the past I realized that if I'm closed off, then I can't do that for them. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I understood that when I got into this field and they put me in a substance abuse program in my master's program, where I did not want to be, it was either that or a church. And I was like, put me in the substance abuse program because, you know, that was another struggle for me. Um, but to make sure that I had um, people actually wanted help and it didn't suck the life out of me. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't taking all the things that I thought that my family was taking from me at the time, which was all the time and energy and effort to provide them support that they couldn't see, you know, um, and just make a decision at that point that there is people that do want to help. And then I got so much out of that. So, um, so things that, you know, I do again is, you know, don't want people money and I stand firm on that. 
You know, don't get people out of jail. Don't ask. I mean, not that my husband would go to jail because he wouldn't, but even my, fam- my own family, I mean, don't, don't you know, it's, don't ask me. And I have. I've done that before. Mm-hmm. I've gotten people out of jail, signed their bonds. You know what? And oftentimes I'll tell parents when their loved one is in jail, um, I'll say, get you some rest tonight. Mm-hmm. Get you some rest tonight. Because you know that more than likely they could get stuff in jail, but they're less likely to die tonight. So yeah. get you some rest. And they, they look at me sometime and just kind of like, you're right, I have been able to sleep for the past several nights or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. So I just say, you know, people need to, you know, really think about, you know, what's the best way to help their family member. And sometimes, almost all the time, the first step is to take care of yourself. Because if you don't take care of yourself, you can't give to others what you don't have. That's right. And Come so... Yeah, that's the best thing I would say. What I really want to know is how did you, because that's not the common train of thought for family members, for people in general. So how did you... What do you mean? What's what's not the train of thought? To take care of yourself first, right? Yeah. That we're not naturally born to think that way. I. I don't know, man. No, There's just, some selfish like, people the, out there to yeah, begin but like, with. When it comes to situations <laughs> yeah. like this with like friends and family members yeah. that are really struggling, really in a bad place. So like, how did you get to that point where you were able to learn those skills and then apply them? Did you learn it before getting into school? Did you learn it at like just coming up and just being in the middle of all that all the time? I just had to learn it from being in the middle of it all the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I say that school didn't teach me that at all. Mm -hmm. But it did teach me to self-reflect. Because, you know, one of the things I was able to do is, you know, I can't help others if I'm in a situation where I'm just as sick as they are. Mm -hmm. Right. So it Mm. forced me to work on myself. It forced me to put myself in a situation. It forced me to look at any past traumas. It it forced me to look at anything that I needed to look at. And I'm still working through that. I'm human, you know, and I'll probably work on that for the rest of my life. Um, But, you know, it's hard for me to walk alongside others if I haven't walked the walk myself. Absolutely. What, um, so you graduated from here and with your bachelor's degree in social work, you search around for jobs, mm-hmm. struggle with that, got into business, didn't fulfill your needs, and you decide to go back and um, pursue a master's degree mm-hmm. in social work, but you didn't come here to no. Western. I didn't because um, the program at the time was really competitive, mm-hmm. and um, you, I think they only let like five folks in. Okay. Something like that. And I probably waited past the deadline. It probably was like more like end of March, April when I decided to come. Mm-hmm. And um, the university that I attended in Florida, um, they had open spots in there. So what I school is that? Um, university of Central Florida in Orlando. Okay. Or, yeah. So it was a good it was a good school. It was a good experience. So you wanted I told, some of that Florida sunshine. I did. Huh? I wanted mm-hmm. to go to the beach. And uh-huh. So we we went out to Coco and fished or, a lot. Orlando's like an hour and a half from two hours, maybe. No, maybe beach? forty-five, 45 minutes, minutes yeah. to Coco. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, we stayed in Avita, so we was like six months. We found the country of the country, yeah, fun yeah. country Avita, of the city. I'm familiar with that. So Especially. we actually stayed in Chuliota. Okay. So that's yeah. like even country people's like, oh, you don't want to move out there? That's backwoods. I said, I'm back. That's where I'm from. <laughs> I said, I'm backwoods. I'm good. Yeah, we. Yeah. yeah we're good. We're good. So, um, I took my two older boys and my husband. We moved down there and went to school. And I was in 18 hours of classes and 18 hours of um, internship. I had no time to work. Had no time to miss anybody. It was a whirlwind, mm-hmm. but it was awesome. So very expensive to live down there, though. Yeah. Rents are expensive. Food's expensive. I love Aldi because I could, uh, yeah, live off of Aldi. You're shopping Aldi, man? No, man. I'm sitting over here like, what are they talking about? So I'm kind of <laughs> Aldi's $80 a week. Yeah, fed a family man. of four, and yeah. you got fresh fruit. Yeah, like organic, nice, good stuff, man. Mm. Good stuff. So, so it was like, all good. Yeah. When you graduated from UCF, mm-hmm. what did you, what was your first, what did you do first? What was the first thing that you? Well, I had already interviewed for two jobs and I actually got two job offers in one day. So yeah, one of them was across town. I would have had to go through a bunch of tolls and pay a bunch of tolls just to get to work and I would have got paid less. And so I went with another one. I worked with foster kids. So I worked with uh, foster kids that had group homes throughout the Orlando. So that's what I did. And how long did you stick around there? Um, not too, too long. Um, it was real expensive to live. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, anybody that's worked in Florida and not been licensed, you know, they have a, you know, the salaries aren't the best if you're not. So you have all these way higher costs of living than here. So um, I decided I could move back to Atlanta. So I, I moved to Atlanta and I worked three jobs there. A little bit closer to home, still in the big city, but still a yeah. decent, a short little drive home if you yeah. needed to come home. Yeah. What was, uh, so that's where you really like got your feet wet in the, mm-hmm. in the field, right? Well, kind, kind of, of. I, you know, I worked, uh, you know, foster children in foster care will teach you a lot about yourself. Mm-hmm. They certainly will. Um, and so I then moving up there, I, mo- I did work still with foster kids, but I also worked in a group home um, for adults with um, intellectual, um, you know, function disorder. Sorry, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that right. How long did you stay um, there? I didn't stay there very long either. I moved there in January and um, I think I moved back up here in October. So October of that same year and I got a job. So I worked with... Um, the Center for um, Self-Sufficiency in Atlanta and worked for Cafe 458 on the other side opposite of where the um, Martin Luther King Memorial is down at Edgewood Avenue in Atlanta downtown. So I'd drive down there five days a week. How old were your children at this time? Like They were, I think, 13, 14. Okay. Yeah. Growing boys. Yep. So you drove from here to Atlanta? Well, I did at one point in um, October because our lease didn't end until like January. So I drove for three months up here um, through the week, mm. stayed, and then went back home on the weekends. Wow. So Commitment. Dang it, huh? As a therapist. But I could work one job up here, yeah. post from the three down there. Uh-huh. Now, when you moved back to North Carolina, mm-hmm. um, what really like influenced that decision? Was it that you wanted to come home to be closer? No. No. <laughs> No, she was real quick on that. She Frida, I, I, I've been sitting back listening to this. You know, you, you walk us through everything, and I feel like, uh, you know, we're God was directing this, this whole thing, like just getting you those experiences. I mean, just the schooling and, 
you know, the lifestyle that you grew up in, and now you're back here, so... Yeah, I don't get in the way there. I just go where it flows. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and one of the biggest things that I try to live by is that, you know, there's a lot of things, and we just talked about this just before. I don't know if it was on um, on the uh, speaker or not, but, you know, we talked about, you know, and I, I joke about this often, and it's like, well, Freddie, you want to be on TV? Yeah. <laughs> you want to go videotape a, a, a video? Sure. Never done anything like that in my life. Um, Freddie, you want to do this? Mm-hmm. But, you know, I can remember myself up here at Western and having to get up there and do a uh, presentation when I was 21. And I was like, click, 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 click. My pen was just going crazy. I was stuttering. I couldn't talk in front of people. And it was horrible. Oh, my gosh, it was horrible. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to let this. I'm not going to let this defeat me. And like I said, you know, and I think every one of us at this table in this room could attest that what we do today prepares us for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so and that's been true to me. That's been true for me anyway. Um, So little things like that that's been building all along the way has really, you know, helped me to to be able to get up and speak in public or or to say stuff and do stuff. And I'm still not a pro at it by any means. So I'll just go with it. It just seems like you have such a, a heightened like awareness to these things, right? Like that you you know that these things are t- taking place, whether it be like the stuff with your family and setting boundaries. Like you're, it's very clear to you mm-hmm. that that's what's going on. You're very present, right? Like you know what's happening, and that's a that's a difficult skill to develop. Well, I would say that those things most certainly came from survival. Yeah. In some cases, and some people might think survival, what does that mean? But, you know, when you when you have any experience with child sexual abuse, mm-hmm. some people may think that that's something that you, you know, you have or not. You have a heightened sense of awareness because of trust. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't trust a lot of people. So that's one of my platforms that I really, really want to, um, you know, message out about the impacts of that. We talk a lot about historic grief and trauma, which is more than likely you know we know that's present people's you know went through and through with that but it's really hard for me to pinpoint that as much as it is what do you do when you got so much trauma still in the current day that you can't even think about what happened 100 years ago because it just perpetuates perpetuates and perpetuates Mm -hmm. now with you know, abuse of all forms, domestic violence, and those type things that continue to shape people mm-hmm. despite the intention. So, you know, if parents aren't aware or things that's going on in, in the relationship and they don't realize how that makes a child feel and how that shapes them. And I'm not saying that, you know, things would change or completely, but, you know, they certainly just being aware of those impacts on the child. Mm-hmm. And so because one of the trainings that I've most recently done was the um, the Beauty for Ashes training um, that South Central does in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And so I talked about that a little bit last time. And one of the things that they talk about is, you know, breaking that silence. And then you come in and you talk about, you know, what didn't your mom and dad provide for you? that you needed? Was it safety? Was it food? Was it a hug? You know, just different stuff like that. And it may be different for different people. And then what happened to you? And then, you know, even harder than that, you know, what you did to others because of what was done to you. Hmm. Man, that is... And then you talk about shame. You know, you talk about the shame and you talk about what shame has cost you Mm -hmm. as an adult. 
And, you know, um, you talk about your relational style. So what, you know, how do you relate to others because what you was done to you and what you do to others? And you talk about that heightened awareness, um, you know, always just paying attention on what's going on around you. But you also then talk about how does people experience me and that forgiveness. Yeah. And that may be for yourself. It may be for others. It may ever be not ever be delivered, but you have an opportunity to address it. And then what do you do next? You know, so powerful. So you think that is like what you're talking about as far as the, I mean, obviously, I guess it's really running rampant through our community, that kind of stuff, the historical. I would just say current trauma is mm-hmm. also, you know, it's hard to even focus on the past when you got so much chaos in the future. I mean, the present, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, which perpetuates those cycles of abuse over and over and so one of the biggest things I feel like is in the community that needs to be addressed is level of normalization of that level of abuse so I don't even know if we've even began the conversation I don't think a lot of people want to begin the conversation because that's such a tough talk to have you know that's something that's going to be really well that's the reason why I say that you can't it's hard for you, and this is one of the things that South Central says, it's hard for you to walk along with somebody if you ain't walk the walk. Yeah. So I'm walking the walk, and that's why I'm here. That's why she's here tonight. And, like, I think that you talk about these levels of mm-hmm. trauma, right? And, like, when for the, the layperson that's not in the field mm-hmm. and they hear this word trauma, they think, like, your mind automatically goes to like worst case scenario, mm-hmm. like sexual, physical abuse and neglect and all of these things. And um, I know you're real big on the the ACE test, right? Adverse childhood experiences mm-hmm. and how, the role that that plays in like substance use and other behaviors. And one of the things that in my personal experience having taken that test and having really looked at like trauma and different theories that are that look at the influence that trauma plays in substance use in in my particular case like I look back now as a middle-aged adult and I'm like no I had a pretty like easy life right like I didn't score high on that test what is it again I know what it is, but just to explain. I mean, Adverse just childhood experiences. Yeah. So it's like a list of, what, 20 or 25, 10, 10, 10. questions. Um, and, you know, I didn't have these so-called traumatic yeah. experiences. Yeah, I didn't either. But having, like, really, I read some of uh, uh, Gabor Mate's, like, theory on on trauma and, like, really looking at it. It's not those like big experiences that they that in my particular case those big experiences that you think about when you think about mm-hmm. trauma, but a lot of like what I would consider minimal experiences that at that time in my life I wasn't capable of coping with them like death, losing somebody that I was very close to traumatic brain injuries multiple traumatic brain injuries as a teenager while my brain was developing and car accidents and things like that that at the time they weren't 
considered like traumatic to me. But now looking back and knowing what I know about how the brain works and about how um, the addictive process like totally influenced the person that I became. Like Gabor Mate says that um, addiction is your, is your solution to a problem. You're trying to solve a problem the best way that you know how based off of these types of like traumatic experiences. And I think in the ACE um, test, you know, it covers things like, you know, did you have an absent parent? Mm -hmm. Um, Did you experience, you know, um, what's some other ones? I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank. But, you know, just it goes. So to be honest with you, when I talk about, you know, what didn't you get from your parent? What was the experience for someone? And who am I to say, you know, what was traumatic to someone and what wasn't? You know, what shaped you? You know, and I'm not saying that that shaped you to the core and, mm-hmm. and, but a lot of times was it, was your safety compromised? I mean, was there things that, um, that you didn't have that you needed when you were a kid, whether it be a hug from mom or dad, you know, I, you know, just different things that can impact people at different levels. And so I think it's important for people to be understand that trauma doesn't necessarily mean that you've been through some experience, uh, like I've kind of described, you know, it could mean that it's something that, impacted you as a child that shaped Mm -hmm. who you became Mm -hmm. it was like I remember like very early in my academic career over at SCC Lori talking about the influence that trauma plays in so many cases of substance use and I was like immediately like put it to the side I'm like no that's not me no 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 that's not me and then it's taken me four years through like my meditation practice and prayer and different things like that to really like even acknowledge that these things happen. You know what I mean? And then like little things that add up to the way that I behave. <laughs> I'm sitting here working Dude, through some yeah, stuff in my childhood. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> you know, and you know, don't, and don't get me wrong. I think that, you know, especially, you know, those that struggle, um, as a child or even a struggle as an adult and even in, you know, using how much trauma is created there because that shame perpetuates the cycle over and over because people, it's really hard for people to, they've expressed to get out of that because, you know, it takes them right back. Mm-hmm. Um, not feeling worthy and not feeling good enough and feeling ashamed because of what maybe the choices they made. Um, maybe females have had multiple sex partners for mm-hmm. drugs or maybe they've done things that weren't mm-hmm. at some level, you know, or they've been raped or they're not sure and they just blank that out. You know, it, it does something to someone, you know. Mm-hmm. And so just really trying to take that in about how that further perpetuates the trauma um, and further perpetuates the hurt. And you explained it really good. And, you know, I always say we're looking for that peace yeah. um, somewhere. Do you know anything, and this is a little bit off the subject, but do you know anything about, have you ever heard of epigenetics? It's a theory or some new science, basically. And I'm not, don't let me, like, try to fool you. I'm not educated on this stuff whatsoever. But uh, it's just something that I found fascinating that, like, we have these genes, right, that, like, I think it kind of might play a role in this trauma but we have these genes like these hereditary genes and these what do you say uh ever like historic historic traumatic like yes. passed down yeah right so we have these genes that are passed on from our ancestors that will turn into something or develop into something and the theory of like epigenetics 
says that our environment <coughs> has the ability to influence these genes, not only for us in ourselves, but also pass that altered gene on to our children. So, for example, you have ex- Caleb have experienced. Um, a substance use disorder, right? Mm-hmm. And you've been through some pretty difficult times in your life, but you've also <coughs> experienced recovery, right? Mm-hmm. And so that recovery experience and all of this health and wellness and things that you're doing right now are influencing your genes to the point where you're going to pass on those, those changed genes to baby Caleb when you guys decide to make that happen. We already got a baby Caleb. The next baby Caleb, the next one. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like so yeah. that that altered that altered gene will be passed on to the kid. That 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 recovery experience, that type of um well, I'm a firm believer that, you know, environment and situations can certainly, you know, I have full hope, you know, mm-hmm. that that recovery part of whatever it is mm-hmm. that you're recovering from um, can heal yeah. things. And to be honest with you, I, I I can't believe anything else just because I've seen it. Yeah. You know, you if you take a child, and, and there's a lot of research out there where you take a child that may be born with... Um, maybe a disorder of some sort that maybe if it's FAS or someone that has um, so autism, you give them an environment. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, you know, and I have just seen it with my own eyes, yeah. even with just that environment change and that support and how important support is and that social um, understanding yeah. for, so, you know, your guys' platform here at NC Raw and just putting it out there about recovery and, and that messaging is, is super important. Where would you, like, in a perfect world, where would we begin this conversation of addressing this kind of systematic trauma that is somewhat rampant in our community? Where do you start the conversation? How do you start the conversation? Well, I mean, we got a perfect platform right now with the Race Hope recovery mm-hmm. meetings to talk about that kind of stuff you know i mean i know freda and them they're already doing it at the recovery center on Anishki and well i think we're doing it right here too yeah i mean we're Absolutely. talking about it and i think mm-hmm. um we're talking about it uh, when, when we're and i've talked a little bit about this i don't know if casey alluded to it at, at any level during his um, um taping but you know even at the hospital you know mm-hmm. starting with the employees with the right way you know we you know, we tell pieces of our story. We get up in front of 25 to 30 employees that we may or may not know um, and um, tell pieces of our story yeah. and normalize that when they come through that they might have the opportunity to hear someone else's story and for them to be ready. So it's really important to always start with your own house. Yeah. And so for me, working with um, the Beauty for Ashes, which is the next step we hope to get here, mm-hmm. diligent work on that right now for that. So um working on to get that here. But just as I'm saying that to others, I'm I'm trying to do that as well mm-hmm. in my own home. That, I, I'm glad that we're talking about this because, you know, we got seven kids 
uh-huh. in our household yeah. that are all there because of substance use, you know, and whatever else goes along with that. But um, my one of my nieces, she's struggling really bad because my aunt passed away. Mm-hmm. Well, she's my cousin, but I call her my niece. She's always called me Uncle K. But uh, anyways, you know, she's really struggling, and she'll come in the bedroom sometimes and just talk. She talks about that trauma and things that she experienced when, you know, my aunt was alive and some of the stuff that she, my aunt would say. And it's, man, it's it's tough. It's tough. And I'm glad you said that, Freddie. That, that just encouraged me even more to talk, keep having those talks with them. And... What, without, like, without, with disclosing as much as you would like what do these conversations at home sound like or look like well i had i don't know if i mentioned this last time of course when i went to beauty for ashes in november um you know just before i went i just got through doing a right way so on friday i tell pieces of my story and um so i'll come home you know and i was talking to my older son and um they you know i've actually got permission to talk a little bit about this from them so um, I wanted to make sure it was okay that I, I mentioned some things about them in my story because um, they're a big part of my story. Um, I'd come home and I was telling them a little piece of my story. And, you know, I get tearful just like I, I do any other time. But And then I look up and, you know, he's crying too. And he comes over and gives me a hug. And, uh, you know, he's my older son. And, you know, he's struggled with some things. Um, and he said, you know, Mom, that's happened to me too. Um, and he was talking about, you know, a violation um, sexually for him when he was a child. And I was kind of taken back at the time because, you know, I thought, wow, you know, I protected him, you know, from people that had did that to me. Why, why, you know, why, why is this happening, you know? And a lot of people forget to protect um, their children from other children. Um, And so you never think about that. Mm. So um, no less the damage. Because, you know, when an older child, cousin, um, uncle, whomever, whether they be child or not, you know, violates someone, um, it really can take people to other levels, you know. And he proceeded to tell me how that affected him and how he couldn't say anything and how things would come up for him, you know, should that, um, should they would have. And it was this story playing in their own mind about this. Um, but it certainly was something that, so, you know, when I, I went to Beauty for Ashes in November and really had the opportunity to um, reflect on that, which was really hard because, you know, as any parent would, would feel like, gosh, I didn't protect my child, right? But um, I knew, I, you know, my rational self kicked in and I knew that I would, um, you know, just have to kind of be there for him and take it in and, and get the most of the experience. So they bring you in and Beauty for Ashes and, and you know, you go pretty deep talking about some things as I kind of highlighted before and it gets real gets real 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 quick Mm -hmm. and you know often people oftentimes when people are abused at some level they abuse and so those are things that you have to ask for forgiveness for and so I've been very um you know I wasn't I always say that you know with limited support I had to be the best mom that I could possibly be mm-hmm. and sometimes that meant being pretty harsh and not wanting to create waves and wanting my children to be perfect and so I've had to apologize for that you know and being a better mother um and so I've I've since then apologized of course throughout to my kids about not being everything that I should have been for them um so that was where my shame came and um, so I came home, 
and my other son was just a year younger than him and I said gosh I went to Beauty for Ashes I had this experience you know you've not ever been had that experience you know with um, abuse at that level sexually and he said no mom and then within an hour he called me back and said yes he had so when I say that I talk about it at a level you know I also know some of my husband's experience and things that he's had to endeavor to um, with things that he had growing up and how it was normalized and just under the rug and don't say that and that ain't right and and you know so having that experience and being able to go to my um um husband and you know just try to be patient with him so um thanksgiving we had a game night and um we got through playing our game and that was the first time we really actually sat down and played a game um and my younger son i said okay before you leave ask your brother how do you experience him and he wouldn't tell him and the other i'll tell my brother how i experience him you know, blah, blah, blah. And he just went on to tell, you know, about a situation. And I'm like over there with big eyes, you know, saying, oh, my gosh, you know. But um, my older son got up and bust out the door because he was mad and said he was going to go do something to beat somebody up or something because of what was said. And, you know, and my husband looked at me and said, see what you did? And, of course, I knew what I was doing. I knew I was poking the bear. Um, but I figured that we needed to have these conversations one way or the other. And so, I, you know. God loved my husband. I just looked at him and said, you go out there and you talk to your son right now. You know, so, and I sent him out the door. And I, well, I said, you know, he's had some similar experiences. And I went not into a lot of detail and just said, go. And uh, he goes outside and speaks to my um, son. And my son would usually burn his wheels off and be gone, you know, and I could hear him all the way in the house. But, but this time he didn't. And he came back in the house with my, my husband. And, you know, it was a good thing. It was healing. Yeah, the whether we as individuals want to like admit it or not, that that fear and a turning towards mm-hmm. that fear and leaning into it and talking about it is what you just said. It, it's how we heal. Um, what? How did you? How did you get involved with this? finding out about this program in Alaska, this training, and, like, how did that even, like, come to, like? Um, well, and, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a funny, oh, it's kind of a funny story, um, but it's, it's just one of those things that, um, that you kind of, I don't know, it's just, I had took part in the right way training when they first brought it here from Alaska, and okay. so I became part of the care team, which are the therapists on the, the thing. So if people have things and issues that they're dealing with while they're in that training, it's triggering, then we have the opportunity to talk to them. And there was times I was learning circle leader, so I was able to facilitate some of the groups. And um, there's also, there became an opportunity where I could become a facilitator. And um, so I was able to get up and, and tell my story there. And the other part of it, you can tell your story at what they call the 30,000-foot level or the 10,000-foot level. With Beauty for Ashes, it's at the zero-foot level, so you really go there. Mm -hmm. And so that's the second piece that we were missing with this is this was kind of for employees in a way to get the employees ready to hear other people's stories should something happen. They come in contact with people that they need to hear their story. I mean, they develop relationships with community members and just need to understand. And everybody has a story. And that's like a kind of a non-traditional approach, right, in the field to be disclosing 
like that. Yeah. Self-disclosure. But, you know, that's one of the parts of the training is that the CEO, which you guys met, oh, yeah. gets up the first day and, and breaks the ice by doing that. We talked about it. Yeah. So, you know, really the Beauty for Ashes is the second part, um, and it's really for the community uh, where we may institute it um, initially for the people that we serve. In you know, at our behavioral health program, we certainly want to make sure that we get it out to the community to where it needs to be. And it's just some really hard conversations sometimes. It gets mm-hmm. people talking about it and really trying to break so it's kind of a treatment slash healing slash prevention model. It's actually a resiliency model um, because it really takes things and it starts and it's for adults usually 21 and up, 18 with really good screening um, mm-hmm. just because your brain needs to be formed mm-hmm. to the point. And um, so they're working on things for adolescents and stuff. But That's huge, that resiliency training, right? Like mm-hmm. I had never even heard of that before talking to you mm-hmm. and – I can remember like an early recovery trying to reflect on my life and just being like, man, you know, my brother, he didn't, he didn't do, he didn't go through all these difficult things that me and my sister have. Like he mm-hmm. w- went on to college and graduated college and furthered his education and started a family and got married and did all these things. And I always like, brushed it off to that he was he was resilient like right and then I would always ask Lori at school I would be like how why is it that some people some individuals are just like naturally resilient and then how do how do you cultivate resiliency and I never I never got an answer I never got an answer right I didn't know what it was now I do you just you just told me but I didn't know what it was. I never found it out. How do you cultivate resiliency, right? Because it's tough. You find, you feel like you're in that cycle of whatever it is, going in and out of jail or, you know, all those different things. Like, how do you, how do you intentionally cultivate resiliency and then even take it a step further to like a prevention, to preventative level to where you're like getting on the front side of these traumas because you're teaching these kids how to live a resilient lifestyle before they experience these. So what did you hear her say as far as like cultivating resilience? Her? Yeah. Just being open and sharing these stories and Mm -hmm. talking about it and and talking about the uncomfortable situations, right? Mm -hmm. And getting over um, that guilt and that shame that we carry and perpetuate onto others well for me i gotta i guess i would share like in a spiritual sense you Mm -hmm. know like the holy spirit flows through me and you know that's that and you think of and i share this all the time like you think of stagnant water if you're not sharing and letting that river flow i mean it's going to destroy you you know and and so many people like like freddie was talking about normalizing you know, just uh, not, you're not supposed to talk about those things. You know, that's the way we've been all, you know, a lot of us have been taught. And it's time, you know, it's destroying our communities and stuff by passing that on down. How many times have you been out to that training? Um, I've went once to okay. the actual training, and then I just recently went back um, a couple weeks ago to the second. I thought I was going to, you know, what was funny is I thought I was going back for a learning circle leader training. 
So I thought I was going for the training for the learning circle, and I knew it was a different um, twist on things. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily therapy, but it wasn't necessarily informal. So you're a participant first. That's usually the roles. Mm-hmm. And then you're a facilitator next. Um, and there was like, oh, yeah, they said this was going to be harder than Beauty for Ashes. And I was like, what? <laughs> so, of course, I spent five days crying because uh-huh. I'm just an emotional person. Um, and it's not because those things are really raw for me it's just because they evoke emotion in me and i love it and i didn't apologize one time when i was there for squalling my eyeballs out so why are you apologizing now i'm not apologizing you did at the beginning you was like i'm sorry if i'm gonna get upset yeah i'll see it's part it's part of my language you see but i didn't mean it how about that i didn't mean it i said it i didn't mean it i take her word for it um but you know I, i i made the commitment that i didn't want to apologize for for the tears I work hard for those things. Mm-hmm. And you talked a lot about bringing this back to mm-hmm. the Cherokee Hospital and directly to your community. What? Where are you in that? Well, realm we've of... we've we're we're exploring our options right mm-hmm. now. So I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful, and so we'll we'll see. Um, the good thing about it is they they tailor, um, they would help us and tailor that training to our population. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's not necessarily that it would just, you know, serve Cherokees because our community sometimes is, there's no boundaries there. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure that, of course, that being our target, not necessarily meaning that that's just where it'll end, you know, mm-hmm. making sure that we. And is it, it's kind of already, because it's based out of Alaska, is it, do they work with the native population out there? They do. Strongly? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They they do a lot of things and works in the villages and stuff. So, um a lot of the rural villages at that. We may not have the same type of setup, but there's cultural components mm-hmm. to it. Um, their care team consists of them. Of course, therapists is there if you need them, but there's elders, a part of the care team, um, and traditional healers as well. i got a question. Sure. So how do you... How do you deal with your trauma? Like the the stuff that you've been through, Freda, and not and not just the stuff that you've been through, but just like your family. How do you look at that trauma now? Do you, do you like look at it as something? Because I just I just made a post about this last night about my trauma is is my treasure. That's how I look at it, you know. And remember those things that I've been delivered and and freed from, and and to share those things with the kids so that they don't experience the same thing. If I can help from it, instead mm-hmm. of not talking about those types of situations so how does you how do, how do you view how do you view your trauma uh, probably similar I mean I certainly I could sit here and say I would change that I would change that but but really I don't know that I would because I can't um, it's part of me it's part of who I am I think it's my job now that I know what I know to and my responsibility to help others um so I, you know, I kind of look at it that, you know, that has incorporated who I am and mm-hmm. all my experiences. Um, I don't like hold on to, to it like a badge or something like that or badge of honor or, you know, something like that. But, you know, do I know that I've worked through a lot of pain and a lot of forgiveness and what does that look like? And I'm still working on that forgiveness. So it's like I've done my work, you know, and I've worked hard. <laughs> So you're, I, you're proud, in a sense, from the I'm resiliency proud. that you've shown. And. Yeah, and I don't pretend that I'm more special than anybody else, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm not. Um, I had some really pivotal people in my life, and that helped. I think that was important. Um, and 
whether or not that made a difference, I don't know. But it certainly, I can honor that and respect that I had what I needed when I needed it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it might not be exactly ideal, but it, it, it was enough, I guess. And for me, that helped. And I, it made me very afraid of a lot of things. And maybe that's what helped me too. My experience made me very afraid of everything. So I was chicken, I guess, if you will. <laughs> well, fear's not a bad thing. It's right? not. Fear, it's not. Fear's only, fear's only bad if you have, you know, the wrong relationship with it. I, you, if you let it consume you, from it, yeah, you, you let, let it consume. consume. Mm-hmm. But when you can like, when you can kind of nurture it and respect it and kind of be compassionate towards it and use it to influence your life to to take the appropriate action in a well, right I, and positive I think, way. I think uh, there's times that's what it sounds like there you is, did. but there's times when fear consumed me completely, yeah. and not in a good way. And so I would say that, um, you know, you you put that, and then you add need, the need to survive, mm-hmm. which we we have, mm-hmm. we have a will to survive. Yeah. So the fear drove me to the point of then I needed that or survive. To survive, I don't know how else to put it, because, mm-hmm. you know, even when you think about um, what you do for your family or what I do for my family now to try to help cultivate that resiliency or that healing, it's about survival, mm-hmm. about making it, and not so much surviving, but thriving. Does that make sense? Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, come on. So, you know, just making sure that we're just, because there's so many times that I've survived, you know, mm-hmm. and done it because I had no other choice. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't miss classes because you got two kids at home that's going to need those sick days. You know, you don't you don't mess around and and waste money on that because you're going to need it. So, but you we do have a choice. Like I mean, you know, me and Caitlin was talking about this mm-hmm. the other day. It's like a lot of people have a lot of people say, "Well, God's not going to put more on you than you can handle." That's not true. Like you you can lay down and let it just run up railroad you and you know just destroy you. So you did have a choice, Freda, and you should pat yourself on the back for that for sure because I, you didn't have to go do anything. Like, you had that choice and you... But I didn't feel like I had one. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. When When you are the only... You know, when you're the one that's taking care of those kids and you got to do what you got to do, you don't have a choice. <laughs> I mean, I didn't have a choice because I already tried the other stuff. It didn't work. It wasn't part of me. I couldn't do it. Couldn't do drugs. Two chicken. You know? <laughs> I could drink every once in a while. Um, that worked for me sometime. Sometimes it didn't. Um, I couldn't steal. It didn't work. <laughs> I tried one time when I was eight years old to steal a pack of gum. It didn't work. <laughs> Fell out. I was so embarrassed. Never even got a bus ticket. So that fear consumed me. But yes, there's times when I used it to my advantage, I would say. But just because it, it kept me. So I started going to school. Could use food stamps, put my kids in free childcare. It became a job, mm-hmm. and that's what it, that's what that's how it worked for me. Yeah, so worked. It's a beautiful thing when you when you can, whether you feel like you're making a decision or not, you, when you can use it in a positive way, apply it in a positive way. Mm-hmm. It can it, it it can be done. It feels so. It feels impossible to do it at the time. You said it's a. It, you're at the time. It felt like survival. It's it's really a hustle. Yeah. 
Sorry, that's the word I have. Uh-huh. I, I think that's the perfect word. <laughs> you know, when you paid yeah. your power bill, yeah. you know how much I was going to give you an extension for. You mm-hmm. knew what you needed to do. And if I got food stamps, I had to get 30 dinners. I could figure out everything else out. You know, you just had to work it. But by going through that, <laughs> dang, by going Afraid through that, a hustler. you're yeah. doing what you said. By going through that, you're doing what you said. You're thriving right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those experiences have allowed you to give it back to your community. Yes, and your kids, you know. Yeah, but, you know, you think about your mom dying at 19, right? And mm-hmm. you think about um, maybe the relationship that she had with maybe your father, and you think about how that starts to shape the relationships that you have, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. go on and on and on, and how that perpetuates in place. Well, I'm not going to live past 40 anyway. Well, I turned 40 on um, Wednesday. But, you know. That would be tomorrow. No, is that tomorrow? Yes. Oh, no. Day oh no, day after. I'm day sorry. after tomorrow. Yeah. So I don't. Day. You know, I turned forty, and I worked for every bit of those years. So I'm not a. I'm not the least bit ashamed of. I've worked really hard for those. <laughs> You're thriving, girl. Don't, I just don't, don't pay attention. Don't, don't try to fool me. You're thriving. I don't. I don't pay attention to it because they say once you start paying attention to all that and giving a crap that you're going to feel your age. So I don't worry about it. And now, you know, I've got my five year old. He'll turn five years old on Wednesday as well. So I've you got, got share a, a really big distraction. Yeah. Oh man. Really. So That's he's awesome. my distraction. And from you my, share a birthday with your mom. mom. Yeah. What's yeah. going on here? Yeah. What's going I on planned here? It. I planned it for the seventh. You did. But it didn't work were... out that way. Oh man. Okay, then y'all are, is y'all child going to be born on your birthday? <laughs> September. Right. We got to. Yeah. She's a September baby. Well, no. That's why. It means you got to get busy. Because I want. I would like to have. You want to time it? We're, we're going way off subject right, here, yeah. but I would like to have. Uh, you know, the Guinness Book of World Records for most one. birthdays on one, one generation is four. It's my, it? mom, my granny was June 28th. Okay. My mom's yeah. June 28th. I'm June 28th. Snow. So now we need... My son's is June 29th, and my other son's June 26th. Okay. So... Hmm. Busy time. <laughs> she, she ain't ready. I'd like to kind of, like, get your um, opinion and kind of maybe share with us some specifics to the process. You've kind of touched on a word multiple times tonight that's very important to me mm-hmm. that played a probably the most significant role in my recovery process and it was extremely difficult to learn and I resisted it and I pushed away and avoided it turned my back on it and tried to do it myself that's forgiveness mm-hmm. mm. um, come on when I first got into recovery, going through Refuge Recovery and the program, they're all about it, you know. And I was really kind of like looking at my life and I was like, you know, like I didn't really like harm all that many people in my eyes in early recovery. I was like, I, I didn't harm that many people. I only, I only really only hurt myself is what I kept selling, telling myself, kept telling myself, kept telling myself. About 18 months into, um, the process, I went through some pretty difficult experiences at that time. And because I had had a taste of recovery and a taste of um, the relief that recovery brought to my life, I knew that I needed to turn towards these 
forgiveness practices in order to truly heal. That there was stuff in there that I was choosing to avoid. And I thought that if I just put it off long enough, it would go away. But it didn't. The shit boiled over. Mm -hmm. Right? And I set a very strong intention to go through the forgiveness process. Like you've hinted on most importantly for myself and to forgive myself for all of the harm that I've caused and then really take a detailed look at the people who I was holding resentments towards. And so I want to know like what that felt like to you because you've talked about it and maybe like what type of action that you took to be able to forgive people because we all would agree that forgiveness is it's an action so like what steps did you take to to get to that point where you felt like you had let go of those kind of resentments well for me you know it was trying to make sense of it all under, truly understand. Understand. Like, I have to make sense. I had to make sense of maybe why things happened the way they did, mm-hmm. why people do what they did, why people did what they did. And so for me, um, when I was 19, I got faced with that. So I got a knock at my door. And without going into grave detail, I would just say that, you know, it was an opportunity for things to be um, in my past to come back up. And I had a choice at that time with two little babies laying right there. And I probably didn't make that choice out of fear or out of fear of what other people might think of me and the backlash that I would get. So I chose not to at that moment. But I also needed to know that if anything, my anger or frustration or the lack there, whatever, you know, the resentment that any little bit of anger, frustration, whatever I had, that this person did not deserve any more brain space of mine than I was willing to give them. So I needed to get to work. Mm -hmm. And so the work was trying to figure out and make sense of things for me. And, you know, at the end of the day, one of the things that I came to the conclusion was, and it may not make sense to nobody else, and it took me over 10 years to get there, and I'm going to say that was a journey, over 10 years, is that this person was sick. And for me, that helped me. Mm -hmm. Um, It helped me to move past, not to condone it, not to say it was okay, but to move past it. And to release that hold that I had because it was almost like it was beyond me. And regardless of what I did or what I didn't do, there was nothing that I could do to prevent it. So for me, that helped me is to find a way. Now, I would say that I struggled more with the people that knew what happened than I did with actually the person that did it. And they did nothing. So that person was sick. What was wrong with them? You had a way to kind of justify that the other, but behavior, I, I, but the other people... Didn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. So for years, it, it was hard to even 
So that was more than 10 years because I didn't even, before I got to that point, then I had to start doing the other point because you start reflecting on things and you had kind of highlighted something that, you know, you started thinking about in your past and you kind of normalized it and you think, oh, hold on, wait, what? Yeah, that, what? That ain't, that ain't right. That ain't normal. That ain't good. And you're like, wow. You know, so you start to, once you get to that point where you're thinking about that, you start to kind of, things start to get clear to you again. So that was a process. It's a process. And so my forgiveness probably was driven out of um, things that had occupied a space in my brain that I didn't feel like deserved it any longer. Mm-hmm. So maybe a little angry, you know, a little frustrated and a little taking some of my power back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really what drove my forgiveness is saying, you know what, this this ain't going to hold on to me. Mm-hmm. What a... Uh... I made a post about this a while back, too, about we live in a society that says, well, you can forgive, but don't forget. Is that truly forgiveness? No. You know what I mean? Like, for me, in that spiritual conversation, like, I have to forgive if I want to be forgiven. Mm -hmm. You know, and not so, I, I don't necessarily... I know some, a lot of times it's harder to forgive yourself than other people. Yeah. But that's the, um, you typically the hardest part. And that's yeah. what I was going to ask her was like, what, what did the self forgiveness look like? You know? Yeah. So what is it? I mean, do, do y'all do that though? Do y'all like most times, has it been easy for you to forget as well? Um, and I mean, that's, that's well, a whole nother yeah, conversation. No, right I, I don't, I don't. <laughs> How could you forget something that's shaped? You, I mean, for me, it you can't, you don't forget it, but I don't, in any sense of the word, put forget anywhere with forgive. For me, yeah, I, don't. I it, don't. It's not even in the we, same context. And I think I'm not a super religious person. So like what we say is like, you forgive the actor, not the action, mm-hmm. right? Well, Jesus, what is it? Jesus says, forgive the sinner, not the sin, right? Is that something? We forgive the actor, the person, not the action that they did. That makes and sense. I will and I will be completely honest when I say I did it totally selfishly. I mean, I didn't follow anybody's book. I didn't do mm-hmm. anything. I did everything for me. I did everything for me. I did nothing for nobody else. Um, and even forgiving myself, you know, being able to say, "Man, I messed up," you know, or. Or, you know, that's good practice to be able to say, man, I messed up. I shouldn't have done that, you know, or wow, how can I do things better? You know, when you impact people or when you have things that you say that you probably shouldn't have said or something. So that's good practice, Mm -hmm. you know, to be humble sometime and just to say, wow, you know, I need to do better, you know. And timing is like super appropriate, you know, like Mm -hmm. there. When I started the process, I didn't jump to the most significant betrayal in my life or the person who caused the most harm, right? Started with somebody that was easy. You know what I mean? Like somebody that like, yeah, dude, I could, you know what? Like this dude cut me off today driving down 107 on my way to to school. Instead of flip, flicking him a bird, I just waved at him <laughs> and slowed down. I said, go on, dude, you're in a bigger hurry than I am. I can forgive that cat. You know what I mean? But the person who caused me the most harm, let's like let's let this process kind of unfold on its own instead of like jumping into that one and addressing it. Um, 
the guy who wrote this book, the Refuge Recovery book, and I'm just quoting that because that's how I what I have used. He says that you can make three lists, right? As you begin this process, the first list is all of the people who, like I just described, yes, they're easy to forgive. I can forgive you. Piece of cake, right? I can totally forgive them. The second list is the people who, yeah, you know, at some point I could probably forgive them. They're in the middle list. Yeah, like at some point. The third list is the no effing way list. Like there's just no way that I will ever. Do you got a list that? Like... Well, just, I mean, if you want to, I, I had. So well, the process is, is as you start this process. Okay. Start with the people who are on the super easy list. Okay. And then kind of transition it over. And what you'll find is the people that are on the no effing way list will move their, will, they will move from that list onto the, yeah, I could, I could forgive that person, right? They'll transition from that no way list to, yeah, potentially. And the people that are on the potentially list are transition over to the, yeah, I could possibly do that because you're opening your heart and you're showing love towards those people and you're healing by forgiving those people who you have forgiven. Well, I struggle with the forgiving myself, you know. Says the person who said I didn't hurt anybody besides myself. Oftentimes we relive those things. Even when yeah. we say that we've forgiven ourselves or we made sense of it, something will come back up and trigger it. And we're like, I remember that time. Or you, you know, you're harder on yourself than probably anybody is. It's totally not a permanent thing, right? I forgive you as much as I can right now today, right? Tomorrow's a whole nother story. These things will come up, right? So what do you got to do? Forgive them again, right? It's an ongoing process. It's not a finalized, fixed object. You're never done. Right. It might not come. It might not be as repetitive as it was when you first started. That process might slow down and you might have more moments of love and compassion towards that person that just totally betrayed you. So you you associate love with forgiveness, right? Oh, absolutely. Compassion. Absolutely. So I've been really inspired and I I just want to share this. I've, I've seen it in my own home, but, you know. A guy that I really uh, look up to, he's a he's a Christian rapper. His brother got murdered. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've seen him pray for the, this, you know, his, his brother's murderers. And said, look, I forgive you. And not only do I forgive you, I speak li- life, love, and blessings over you and your family. And that, that's like, you know, because if you associate love with forgiveness, true love keeps no record, right? Mm-hmm. So, if... <laughs> Man, this is going. I'm trying to. I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but that blocks your blessing. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I'm not like if you say, "Well, I forgive you," but I'm not going to forget. Like, I, I think that I've really challenged myself to do both because it blocks my blessing. It blocks me from having true freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, from those things in my past or some hurts that I've I've made toward myself or others made toward me. Um. You know, because I, I have a lot to be forgiven for, so I, yeah. I I really push myself and try to uh, when I when I can't do it, I ask ask for help, you know, from the Lord, and I just wanted to share that with y'all. Love it, brother. Love it. Oh, um, let's get on to talking a little bit about the services that you guys offer, 
at Anna Lenisky Hospital. Mm-hmm. How? Anna Lenisky. There you go. <laughs> I've, been, I've been practicing that for 10 weeks. You guys. You've been in the mirror. In the mirror. <laughs> over and over and over again. Um, mm-hmm. No, I want to talk about a little bit about like Casey was really big on like the continuum of care and what it looks like from start to finish. And so I would really like to know as, as far as like recovery related. And I really like to know like what that currently looks like and then maybe like the direction that you guys are moving in what like some of your goals are and how you mm-hmm. how you see things to potentially change or how you could be better what do you need from the community and that that sort mm-hmm. of thing um well you know of course currently you know people know we've got a lot of um we do have a, we have a lot of substance abuse services right now um we have our MAT program, which is our Medicaid Assistant Treatment Program, Suboxone. We don't use anything else like Subutex or uh, Methadone in um, our facility um, because of obvious reasons, I guess, when it comes to the, um, I guess, level of diversion and different things like that that we worry about. Um, and diversion meaning, you know, maybe using it in the way that it wasn't intended to u- be used or not, you know, um, going with program rules and those type of things, just really holding people, um, having a standard of care. Let's just say that. Uh, we've recently been joint commissioned accredited as a behavioral health um, um, organization within the hospital. So that's a new feat for us, just meaning that we have certain standards in place that are national standards that um, kind of guide our principles, which is also a requirement for that Medicaid billing, which is really good. It is, has allowed us to expand a lot of our services. Um, we have, um, we have Kanawotee, which has been open since, um, January, um, to uh, January 22nd of this year. And so we've got a few, uh, participants that are in what we would call our long-term program. Go ahead and for the audience that doesn't know, Kanawotee. Yeah, Kanawotee is our, um, residential treatment facility located in the Snowbird community in Robbinsville, North Carolina. Um, and so when I say our long-term program, people that are going to stay um, upwards of a year. Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, and, and we're kind of evolving and we'll meet the community's needs wherever we feel. It isn't like we had one of these before for Cherokee. Mm-hmm. We might have had other ones for different facilities in different places. And so we want to make sure that we we stay solid, but we stay fluid in a sense that we can uh, meet the community's needs and what that might look like since we do have unique needs from um, maybe somewhere in Asheville or somewhere in another uh, for another tribe. Yes. The last time we was on was back in February, wasn't it? Not quite that long ago. A- April, was April, maybe. April, yeah. Was it really? Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was ten weeks ago. Or something. Hey, anyways, hey. there wasn't. I remember I asked you, Frida, and there wasn't a lot of data at that point. And I know there's still not a, a wealth of data there, but I, I just kind of want to know because I've had a lot of people ask me, like, what is the recidivism rate what is you know how successful are we not like you said i know we're just now starting and we have to evolve mm-hmm. and fix some things but i just want to well i think it's important for us to really know and that's one of the things that i probably would say that we could probably need from the community is is the education piece so anytime we get an opportunity to educate we we want to be able to do that so what does determine success in a program yeah. you know and so a lot Sustain of the times recovery, right it could be it could be. I mean, that, that's the goal, right? When you get them in, uh, uh, once you get I would them say completed. absolutely. Absolutely. We certainly want sustained recovery. 
Um, you know, oftentimes I want to say that people do want to uh, place a high, high level on maybe the amount of relapses someone had or the amount of, but every situation is different. Mm-hmm. Let me say that. Very circumstantial. So, mm-hmm. you know, what if their support wasn't there? What if they had support and it wasn't as strong as it needed to be? You know, what if they were made recommendations to do something else and they didn't? So one of the things that we try to look at, you know, is keeping people engaged upwards of a year in treatment. So I did do a report out um, most recently, and I think I did so to tribal council, too, when I was there. I don't know if you watched that work session. I wasn't there that day. Um, You could probably watch it in a rerun if I I did it there. But, you know, we've had we were in line with the standards of the country when it comes to success rates at that moment. Of course, I haven't looked back at them this month. Um, So right at or around 40 percent success rate. Okay. So that's in line. Um, And. We fluctuate. I think we're probably close to a full house, but not there yet, but close to it. How many is that? 20. 20 uh, would be 10 male and 10 female. And so um, we recently, we're just not getting ready to come online or right about the time where we come online have taken other federally recognized tribes as well. So in Archista, which is mm-hmm. within our area to start, we're doing a rollout um, because we can't just... You know, there's a lot of processes that have to be worked out when we start taking out of the area folks as well. So we have to um, kind of make sure we have those processes nailed down when it comes to that. So um, we're just wanting to make sure that we meet the the clients where they're at. So was there what was the other part of your question? I'm sorry. Now, per cap time is a big time for a lot of our programs we Mm -hmm. see. So we want to make sure that we, you know. What do you mean a big time? I would say a big time. We probably see um, some of our numbers drop off when it comes to people's attendance. For sure. Um, and I know that people get per cap loan checks, but, you know, that's one of the biggest things that we see is the, the things kind of go down for the month of As far as, like, participation in the recovery center yeah. and things like that? Yeah. And at times we have people, you know, of course, this is our first per cap, but, you know, people will leave treatment as well. But what we find and something that we're exploring to do at this moment, not really necessarily exploring, we're trying to implement is probably MAT at our treatment center. Okay. So if it's the right fit for the right person, mm-hmm. um, being able to meet them where they're at. Because, mm-hmm. you know, some of the recommendations now is that, that MAT is kind of looked at like methadone is in a way. So when it, MAT being Suboxone in our case, mm-hmm. um, where they may not be an end to that treatment. So... What about the services that you guys do on a daily basis just at the recovery center? Like what what do they offer? What what's available? Um, they've got very they've got then their schedules has just probably recently changed, but they've got everything from I think um there's uncle classes. I don't know exactly. I guess it just kind of tries to bring in some of the Cherokee values back in. Um there's some language classes I know on Friday. I'm just overviewing a few of them that I've I haven't been over there mm-hmm. recently, um, but you know it's they've, like, it's they've got a lot like of a... art classes. Yeah. Um, they've got life recovery, which I think. Um, um, do you guys? Does anybody know about life recovery? Yeah. Here. Yeah. It's the the faith based twelve step. Oh. So it's, yeah. it's essentially just like. <laughs> and they got we got uh-huh. SAT SAT. Substance abuse treatment classes. Oh, yeah, substance abuse treatment That's classes. That's a big yeah. one. That's, that's a pretty... And when you say recovery center, I guess I get confused. we got a recovery center, and then we got the 
Anilanishki. So it's kind of it's kind it's kind of a little different. So when you say recovery center, I'm trying to look at the recovery center schedule and yeah. and what Ma- goes on there. Well, mainly just like what's the overall like concept of it so it's like an iop kind of place where people can just come and like find out well sat sat is on on our treatment Mm -hmm. side i guess if you will the recovery center kind of has their own schedule so Mm -hmm. when you said that that's why i was like i don't been over there in a while they got all kinds of classes let's go into i didn't bring the little pamphlet but i can get it for anybody that might need it um and so SAT is our outpatient substance abuse treatment program, uh, similar to IOP. It's not IOP, but it's similar to IOP. Okay. Hey, I, I just want to get in here and, and advocate for a new class <laughs> for people that, so that that graduate from SAT, you know, because there's been a lot of people that graduate and then they're just kind of like, they enjoy those things and they don't have nothing to do after. They can come back to SAT, but you're really relearning everything. Starting like, over. Yeah, and... We've and we have explored um, we have explored other um, modalities for kind of after care mm-hmm. I guess if you will a lot of times people call it aftercare yeah um, and we've we've looked at where um, something called prime for life it's prime for life um, would kind of fit in yeah. um, and so we can build the Cherokee values into that I really like that I went to a training back in December. Um, with that and we kind of can build the turkey values into that and also help reflect a lot about what's going on at that phase of treatment so we're certainly looking into the aftercare part most definitely the last time you were on in regards to like the continuum of care i asked you what was missing what was Mm -hmm. the biggest opportunity well, we talked about the crisis stabilization yeah, unit. That's and, going yeah, this. and so just recently it was approved. Mm-hmm. Um, the financial was approved for the um, crisis stabilization unit, which would be you know probably at or around fourteen beds with four high acuity beds, mm-hmm. meaning that you know those that have to be um, more care will be watched. Those other four, and there will be a treatment uh, regimen for those that are in that. Um, in that part of the the hospital. Okay. So that was so approved. It was approved. Okay. It is a yes, 31 million dollar project. So they're going to like break ground soon or they already did or what's We that? certainly what's hope so. On? So okay. we're just working out some of the details. There's people that's currently Beautiful. in that building still that has to be moved. All so right. yeah. Some administrative adjustments. And this have is to take place. this is this is huge. Yeah. You know because there's uh there's not enough room up there at the hospital currently and everything with all the services that they provide. So I know that, you know, a lot of people unfortunately aren't when they're ready to go up there, they just don't have the space to take them in at that moment. So this is going to make a huge impact in the community. Yeah, and you know, and there's a lot of other services that we're not able to offer at the hospital, you know, because mm-hmm. we do want to be able to meet people where they're at because there is such a demand for the, the detox services. So what there, do you do so. in a situation like that where you're unable to meet the needs of them at that time or provide the well that they, they would probably would. come through um, a lot of the times they may be seen in the er so you know oftentimes we try to refer them to another facility depending on their circumstances and depending on you know where they're at and what they're doing and how they came in you know if it was an overdose and they don't want to stay or or if um you know still going to try to make some referrals to other facilities if we didn't have something for for them gotcha. if they if they don't have any medical things that supersede that. Yeah, so. yeah. What um what questions do you have for us? What can we do? What can me and Caleb do? Well, um, I always just say it's, you know, the opportunity to educate people. Um mm-hmm. I know that you're is it 
your guys is saying recovery always is that what it is that's right mm-hmm. okay that's right. well and i think that was one of the biggest things is you know meeting people where they're at accepting people where they're at you know and and i think you guys do that for the most mm-hmm. part really well so uh, mm-hmm. you know i just if you guys can continue to do that I, and i have an antidote a little bit i wanted to share with caleb um it's been a, a while back that um uh, I had somebody walk up to me and they were talking about how they were struggling in their life. And I hadn't really never talked to this person. Um, and they were just telling me about their experience with that. And I kind of offered them some feedback about, you know, maybe what, what maybe they should do at that moment to kind of help them, you know, to get what they needed. And they said, but yeah, yeah, um, that, that I want to get involved like that Caleb guy, that Caleb guy, he he's doing stuff out there. I want to do what he's doing. And so, you know, it was like, wow, you know, you know, just kind of further reiterated to me, you know, the importance of of having, you know, partner like, partners like you guys out there in the community, mm-hmm. um, you know, voicing that you know, and being um, visual for people to see you that, you know, recovery does happen and it happens many ways and being able to use what works for you. Um, it really somewhere in the back of someone's mind is playing out, you know, that I can do this too. That's right. So Yeah dude. You were that you you were that dude one at one time. What? That was saying, I wanna do that. I wanna change. I wanna be that person, right? Yeah. There might there <laughs> might not there might not have been a role model in your life at that time. I, I did were, I didn't have I didn't at that time. Yeah. So I, I yeah. I know what I wanted to see, mm-hmm. so that's what I'm just doing, man. Just being that change. Yeah, I think that no matter how much you want to uh, avoid it, like it's very clear that you are a major role model to all of your community, not just the kids, but people like Frida just described by doing the things that you're doing every single day, right? Um, you, you you're humble right you, you're you're very humble and you don't want to well depending on who you ask but yeah, if you yeah. ask me I, yeah i have to be yeah. you know um i've been giving a lot so mm-hmm. i'm there's gonna be a lot required of me and that's just one of the things i try to do is stay that way and check myself check my heart make sure i'm doing the things for the right reasons and i'm blessed to you know be that mm-hmm. that role model <laughs> that's yeah. still dude embrace it bro it's reality (laughs) my friend it is reality yeah it is i just appreciate frida you know and all the stuff that that she's going to be bringing here to the community and i'm really excited about this what is it again beauty for ashes beauty for ashes Mm -hmm. i'm really excited it's a bible verse quote i think you might know more about that than me but that's where that comes so i I got i I do have a question though Mm -hmm. So, Frida, now I know that you're the behavioral health director. Whenever you're out in the community, are you still being that recovery ally? You know, like not just waiting for people to come up to you, but you creating opportunities to go and witness to other people and picking them up. And just, you know, because we need more of that. We need more of that, you know, stepping out of your comfort zone. And One of the things that I know is that I'm all for stepping out of my comfort zone. But one of the things that I value to my core is my peace and my Mm self-care. And I know I give so much when I'm on stage, 
when I'm out there, when I'm helping people, I just pick the perfect job because it don't feel like I'm working. But by gosh, when I lay my head down at night, I'm tired. <laughs> so when I say that, my son, I'm going to give you two examples. I'm sitting there um, eating one day at Taco Bell with my family. We're eating. Um, someone comes out of the bathroom and you could tell um, they had been using um, something at some point. Um, they go over there, they lay their head down on the table and, um, I'm eating my taco and I'm looking over at this person and I'm looking over at this person and my husband's like, what? And I said, you go ahead and take the kids out of the car. I'm going to go back, make sure that they're doing okay. And so I walk over there to the table and I said, are you doing okay? And they popped their head up real quick and looked at me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing Okay. And I said, are you sure? Yeah, yeah. And they went in to tell me about how they needed to go to treatment and how they should have done this and how they should have done that. And then they said, um, they talked about losing a family member and then they got tears in their eyes, you know. And I said, well, when you're ready, we're there. You know, because they weren't ready. They had a few excuses and had to go do this and do that. So I said, I'll give you a ride up there right now if you want me to. You know, um, and the person just said, I said, well, is there anything I can get for you before I leave? Just just something to drink. Mm -hmm. Okay. I went over and got him a drink, come back. And by the time I was walking back, I seen the police pull in. So I already knew that they called the police on the person, you know. And I said, the police is coming. She said, I said, you got somewhere to go? And this person said, yes. And they came over there and it was like, who are you? You know, they're, you know, being police, what they do. So anyway, I just, you know, I, of course that was out of my hands, but, you know, I just wanted to, you know, I, I didn't want to be like, you know, turn a blind eye to people, you know, to check in on this person and make sure they were okay, you know, and, and not play into the stigma of, you know, not that I would, but, you know, you see that as, you know, they call the police, you know, just, I don't know. So I just wanted to make sure I checked in with them and offered them something. And um, so anyway, with that being said, um, my son was like, Mom, I seen somebody up here at this store and it was eight o'clock in the morning and they ran up to me and was acting all crazy. And one day I didn't bring my gun. And I said, you have to carry a gun everywhere, you know, because he's, you know, he's just 20, you know, so he's <laughs> he does his 20 year old thing. And I said, <laughs> I said, well, where was it at? And he was just explaining it to me, and I was on my way to work. And um, he goes, why? I said, no reason. I said, I just want to go up there and check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because he said that the person came out and just, like, like bucked up at him but was, like, completely, you know, not, not mm -hmm. coherent to the point. And I said, well... And he said, just busted out in a run and just went up into the woods or something. And I'm like, are they okay? And he, and then my husband's calling me, where are you at? Did you go up there? I did. I was circling around the parking lot by the time <laughs> he called me. <laughs> I did. Um, I, and, you know. It, that's you know, why I but, I but I draw my limits in places. Right. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, I draw my limits in places. I mean, I have to. I, I can only give so much. And I don't, if it's not. Too bad, and I feel like I got a lot of energy, especially early in the morning. I'll I'll, I'll go check, or if I can check on in somebody, I'll do it. 
See, that's what I, that's yeah. what I was hoping to hear, you know. Yeah. But I'm don't. not going to give you no money, and I'm not going to get you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's my rules. I just and I just used it the other day with a family member, so they got mad at me too, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's okay. Well, you remember that they said, and I said I will. I'll remember that. Well, they said what now? Well, you said if I ever needed help, you I asked you for it, and I said <laughs> I'm trying to give you help. You just don't want the help that I'm trying to give you, right? And um, you know, I said, and they said, well, you just remember like they were trying to shame me for that, and I said. Don't you worry. I'll sleep really good tonight. I didn't. I didn't further you. I didn't give you what I said. It's summertime. You ain't gonna freeze to death. P- park up somewhere and sleep. Get you a blanket. You'll be okay. Maybe you get tired of that one day. Then we'll talk about some real help. I mean, I, you know, don't come in my yard and you know say that to me. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna hold my boundaries. There. That's what they're there for. You talked a lot tonight about self-care being very important to you what does that look like in your life boundaries yeah and and once you get that taste of peace when people start to intrude upon it like sometimes i'll work let's say 60 hours a week and i'll work a whole lot Mm -hmm. you know and i'll work overtime big time stay up at night do financial stuff for things and programs that need to be developed but I know I'm only going to do that for a short time. Don't ask me to do that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> because my self care. And yeah. so it, what that looks like going out on a boat on Saturday is awesome. Yeah. Um, going. I travel. I like to travel. Yeah. You know, traveling's good. I like ta- the beach. We're talking about reading or listening to books. I listen to books everywhere though. That's yeah. kind of a chore. But I like to ride in the car mm-hmm. on the way to Kanawha Tea. I'll put on a book and listen to it. And it's awesome. In the shower. <laughs> um, it is, it's awesome. <laughs> it is. And so that's what my self-care is. So I, I like to you know, spend time with my family, check out. That's what I do. I love it. Free gave me a couple good books to read. She might be giving me a book to read. She gave me some titles. She broke out some titles yep. for me. I got some titles. I was telling you before we started, I was like, you know, Ever since I've been in this, doing this recovery thing, I've only read books about recovery, about addiction, about like mental health, self-help, you know, spiritual meditation, all this stuff. And I got to thinking, I'm like, dang, Steve, you know, like you, you partied so hard for so long. Like there's so much else out there for you to learn about, you know what I mean? So I've been like reading books about history and like politics and like just just weird things if they have good reviews and people recommend them like all right i'm gonna check this book out you know i'm kind of like venturing out on my trying to learn something man well the alchemist and i know i'm not endorsing that book but it was pretty it was it was like that was the first book i really like listened to Uh that wasn't kind of like work-related type so because i'm not a big reader i mean Mm -hmm. i've read in school just because you have to but i'm not a reader I'm sorry, I'm not. I'd rather listen hey, and you, watch. You get so. through that master's of social work program, you'll be a you'll be a reader. I've read some, but, but but you know what? When you're reading journal articles, that really it's interesting. You're not working at all. Yeah. I almost couldn't get my projects done because I was like, Man, I need to get out of this because yeah. this is this, I'm, I can stay here all day. I need to focus. Uh-huh. I had to lock myself in the room and get stuff done. I love it. 
but I also did about six years in a PhD program. <laughs> and let's talk about goals real quick. Hold on, let's talk about Uh-oh. goals real quick. Because All right. I think in your bio or somewhere I read, I think it was your bio that you sent me, said something about a PhD program. Yeah. So t- what does that look like? Where are you going I, with that? I'm done with that. I'm really done with that. What, do you, what does that mean? That means that I started that prior to having um, a two and four year old or mm-hmm. soon to be three and five year old. That three and five year old is going to be 10 and 12 in a couple of years. Yeah. And I'm, I don't know what I was, it worked for me mm-hmm. and I kind of went with it yeah. school wise, but it wasn't fulfilling to me. It became a very big burden. Yeah. So, and do you think that was just because of like parenting and then having such a, like an influential role in the hospital and like just balancing all three at the same time or was yeah. it just not for you? It was for me. I learned a lot. Uh-huh. I learned a lot about studies. <clears throat> Sorry. I learned a lot about um, how research happens. I mean, I, I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say I didn't learn a lot, but it didn't mean the same thing that it meant to me at the beginning of the six years that yeah. it meant at the end. Mm-hmm. And I probably had a year left and I was just exhausted. It became so much of a burden and it wasn't, I wanted to spend time with my kids. I missed out a lot. I felt mm-hmm. like on my other kids um, because I would spend all night doing papers and I'm just like, I was done. I had a goal to get my PhD by time age 40. I stopped going in December um, of last year, and I was just relieved. I was tired. I was done. And what was it going to get me? That was my goal. So laying it down, it's all mine. Yeah. It doesn't deter me one bit. Do you feel the position that you're in, that's your calling? Do you feel like that's your purpose? Um, as far as like your occup your vocation, you know. I think being um in this field at some level, yes. Absolutely. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Now when that time comes that I'm not, I'm ready for and when things change or if things ever change, then I'll be right there too. I just gotta be open to it. Because to me I feel like it was and I may be completely wrong and something else might have went on something somewhere. But, you know, when, when you get to that point of change, well, I've gotten to that point of change, I've, I felt like I was hitting walls. I felt exhausted. It didn't give me energy anymore. Um, and there's times when I felt like that. And one time I had mentioned, I just remember one day mentioning, well, if you have any leadership positions, maybe, maybe you could tell me what you might have. You know, consider me. And... Um, before I knew it, I was being asked to be the assistant director. And I was floored. Because never in a million years, especially when you don't feel your own worth sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, before you knew it, it was, would you ever be willing to do be director? So I had talked myself out of that one. Um, and, and I don't know if my boss, Dr. Benio, will hear this, but um, he had... Um, I had talked myself out of it. He said, think about it. And I came back and I said, I was going to say, no, I can't do that. I can't do what, you know, uh, Doug does, you know, what he has done. But when I went back, he said, we will help you. We will assist you. We will help you grow. We will mentor you. We will do everything we can do to help you to be successful. I mean, how can you say no to that? You can't. So you just go with it. Mm-hmm. And that was 13 months ago. Mm-hmm. Look at you now. 
I seen you buzzing around that Cherokee Middle School at the recovery rally. Yeah. Community was all over her, man. She was mm-hmm. buzzing around. I seen them little kids. Was... I seen them young into yours running yeah, around yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, they're wild. <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> My husband's awesome with them. That's what we had to yeah. make. A, we had a conversation about. All right, this is what it's going to look like if we. You ready to have some fun? Mm-hmm. Ready to wrap this thing I up am. with some pictures? I'm I ready. got some pictures. I want you to describe to our audience what has taken place in the photo. Mm-hmm. And then what is like the backstory? How did you get to this point in your life that you decided I'm going to take a picture of this moment and I'm going to post it on social media? Oh, okay. Ready? Mm-hmm. You ready? You ready? You ready? All right. I got this one right here. Oh, where was that at? We were at the beach somewhere. I see some water behind you. Yeah, we were at the beach. Mm-hmm. We love the beach. Who is? Me and my husband and my two kids, my two baby kids. Mm-hmm. Where do y'all Two baby kids? <laughs> well, I don't know where we were at. To be honest with you, we go y'all to the beach. You we go went all to, over. Y'all we don't went go to the, the beach same five spot? times last year. Did you really? <laughs> probably. Man, we've I, already been three. We're going oh again probably goodness. by the end of the year. We I, like the beach. I lived in North Carolina for almost five years, and I've been to the beach zero times we since like the I moved fish. here. <laughs> we've been a couple times. Fish. We all love right. the fish. That's what's up. So that was a nice family photo. All right, this one right here looks kind of recent. I think it's a recent photo. Oh, yes. That was when I was in Anchorage. We were down in the Earth, not Earthquake Park. We were, it was called Cook Inlet. What's that big thing behind you? Uh, that you know? is a water tower. Big water tower right So on the ocean. supposedly people that live in Alaska on the other side used to play some kind of softball or something on the other side mm-hmm. when the mud would go out. Or something like that. Hmm. And there was an earthquake somewhere in the area where some of the anchorage fell into the, the ocean right there. Yeah. So hmm. I got a few rocks there, and um, there was two eagles that was circling. And I can't even really say that I've ever seen eagles. And mm-hmm. there was two of them. Not there, but kind of circling around above us. Two right here. <laughs> Eagles, lions, whatever. <laughs> um, what so you've been? So you, how you've been to Alaska twice? Yes, this was for the elite training, which is the advanced learning. The first time it wasn't in the summer, was it? No, and it stayed like daylight. I think it went dark about midnight, and then I think it went um, light about four o'clock in the morning again. A so hours. I used a little thing over my eyes, and I got a lot of things. I stayed up to twelve thirty every night. I got a lot done. <laughs> You felt it Jump in that Uber or Lyft and go downtown and get me a massage and run around town and eat seafood all by myself. It was awesome. So were you doing training or were you on vacation? I know. Well, right? you had a lot of hours of daylight when you got out at five fifteen. You true. could just go you wherever. Got a whole other day ahead of you. I didn't even have a TV, but I got my hustle on, <laughs> and I got that Uber driver to take me to get a free TV on the curb. Hey, Steve, what did you <laughs> learn? What did you learn on this episode tonight? To get your hustle on. Get your hustle on. <laughs> Gotta get it. All right, last photo right here. Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, that's Alaska in November. Yeah, I see yes. some snow so up on the those airport. mountains. Yes, and so the the mountains in the summertime are like no snow on them. So in the wintertime, you get all the snow. Yeah. And that's awesome. Is that the, not the most like beautiful airport yes. in the world? It's it was awesome. And there's. No, I'm just like, I'm in this picture right here. And we didn't see any moose again, but that's okay, because they say if you see them run, so that's what I was going to do. It's going to run if I need it to. I heard those moose are beautiful creatures out there. And then I was like walking through got, there man? this time, and it was a, somebody said, I think there's a bear over there. And I was like, no, that's people, but that was the wrong spot. <laughs> so I could have so got ate by a bear. 
Are those um, clouds like down on the horizon below the that's mountains? That's fog, fog, yeah. yeah. I love it. That's awesome. Free to sailor, you are. We got one question. Go ahead, bring it. From the audience? Yeah. We got an audience question? Caitlin Ladford. <laughs> so would you encourage family members to talk about those traumas now to their children? And if so, what's the best way to approach them seeing how they are children? I think one of the things that parents could do, depending on at what level, because a lot of times, like we said, a lot of the people that are in our lives have experienced that abuse themselves. So sometimes I always like to go back to the, to the person themselves and that self-care. But one of the things that parents can do now is just educate their children about what's normal, what's not normal. And that does sometimes require a level of supervision for kids, you know, and being aware if it, you're worried about other kids with kids. Um, and also just talking about what's not normal, what's not okay. Um, you know, and, and making sure that people understand that, um, you know, just having those conversations about, well, me and my kids, it's the privacy area. You know, we call it the privacy area. Nobody touches your privacy area. And even at the level of them being enough, old enough to wash themselves and with supervision and making sure, you know, and, and who you leave them with and who's around them. Um, and that does require a level of um, awareness, you know, and so if there's things that you can do to teach your children about what's normal, what's not normal, what's okay, what's not okay, because some of the things you hear is, you know, well, I didn't want them to think I was gay if it's a male on male or if they f they felt like they were going to betray somebody or their family members would be hurt. That, that trust that comes in well, with those family members or those children to just help incorporate that trust between you guys so that, you know, that could be talked about. And sometimes just telling your own experience to the level, whatever age they are at, you know, of course that needs to be age appropriate. Um, but, you know, that, you know, sometimes people did stuff to you that they probably shouldn't have. So you want to make sure that they're safe, you know. Um, and, and so this is some of the things that you would be worried about. You know, nobody should ever touch your privacy area, as I say to my kids, you know, and even at youngest four and five, um, just making sure that they understand that what's normal and what's not normal, because most of the time um, it is normal for a lot of people. I dealt with it. You deal with it. Mm -hmm. It was OK for me. You'll be OK. You don't talk about that stuff. So certainly not the attitude you want to have and have foster openness with your kids. So just as Caleb said, you know, you know, be that change you want to see, you know, and working on yourself is you can't never go wrong with that. Keep working First. on yourself, she says. First. I love it. Freddie, you're amazing. Thank you yes. for getting on here and, and sharing the way you did. So inspiring. You're welcome back anytime. We'd love to continue these conversations. Does it feel like you sat here for two hours and talked about Over two stuff? hours. Yeah, not really. Good stuff. Thanks. Thank you guys for tuning in to NC Raw. The NC Raw family would like to thank today's musical contributors, Rival, whose work can be found on Facebook, SoundCloud, and YouTube by searching Rival 727. And a close friend of the show, former guest, Alvin Hooks, a.k.a. Notes. We're going to close it out with a exclusive track something he hasn't released he just sent it to me today he was in the studio i think over the weekend 
So this is the first time this, it's not posted anywhere. I think this is the first time this song is going to be played. It's called Grateful. You can find his music on SoundCloud by searching Alvin Hooks and his Facebook page, All or Nothing Music. All of the NC Raw content is available by visiting our website at www.ncraw.life. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe by dropping your email address into the little subscription box so that we can email you exclusive content offers and the latest episodes when we post them. Thanks for tuning in. Yo, Jason Gilliland. Brandon Price, Sean Perard, Kevin Heater, Cole Miller, Blaine Taylor. Without y'all, man, I wouldn't have today, man. Rest in peace, homie. Look, most of us do not have to think twice about this question. We know my whole life and thinking was centered around drugs in one form or another. Getting it and using it and finding ways and means to get more. We live to use and use to live. Simply an addict is a man whose life is controlled by drugs. We are people in the grip and a continual progressive illness whose ends are always the same. Jails, institutions, and death. I'm so grateful for the day and everything that I've been through. Life's not easy, so your boy knows he pushed through. Everything's a lesson. Every day is a blessing. And I'm looking in this message and this lesson sent from heaven. Then I try to give it back. I can't keep it to myself. I was told everything I learned, get it someone else. Give another person hope. Help keep them off the dope. Help keep them from going under and help them stay afloat. I'm so grateful for my past life. Seen a lot of pain though so much to tell and help a human in this world yo life without parents game banging to addiction almost lost my life a couple times behind my bad decisions i'm so grateful for another chance i'ma take a stand and be a better man do some making i help them understand i ain't gotta use no more look at what i am look at what i got look at what i'm not i'm so grateful fam before coming to the fellowship of bna we cannot manage our own lives we cannot live and enjoy life as other people do. We had to have something different and we thought we found it in drugs. We placed them ahead of the welfare of our families, our wives, our husbands, and our children. We had to have drugs at all costs. We didn't mean the people great harm, but most of all, what we did was we harmed ourselves. Look, I ain't in the jail, I ain't in the ground Got my kids around, bro, I go to work Bring it home and lay it down Talking to my homies who gon' be there for me They gon' keep it raw, hit me in the gut Tell the truth no matter what, tell it all Tell me about my flaws, please don't let me fall If I have a problem, bro, I make sure I call my sponsor, y'all Got me through my steps, when I feel alone, he's my help When I'm going through, he tell me notes Look, you ain't by yourself, there been times I'm giving up Gave me to it Addiction, end up on the mission in the end I'm broken in my feelings and I found the room where addicts go talk about their pain ways to change better days and giving hope to another man most of us realized that in our addiction we were slowly committing suicide but addiction is such a cunning life that we had lost power to do anything about it most of us ended up in jail or sold help through medicine, religion, psychiatry. None of these messages was sufficient for us. Our disease always resurfaced and continued to progress until in desperation we sold help for each other in Narcotics Anonymous. That's what it is. <laughs>